I surely do miss seeing your smiling faces on Sunday morning. Speaking to fellow worshipers is certainly more pleasant than talking to some miserable iPhone. I look forward to our being together again, soon we hope. I want to begin with a warm Trinity Sunday welcome. May God's Spirit incline our hearts toward Him that we might experience His delight in us. For as the prophet Zephaniah said, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3.17 Last Sunday, being Pentecost Sunday, Graham began a three-week series on the Holy Spirit. He asked me to talk today about the theology of the Holy Spirit, so let's begin by looking at the Holy Spirit as one person in the Divine Trinity. For nearly 700 years, the Sunday after Pentecost Sunday, which is today, has been celebrated as Trinity Sunday, a day for remembering our Christian belief in one God who is three persons. As we've declared this morning in the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress in our, is Our God by Martin Luther. In this hymn, we sang our praise to the one who is God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. And since it is Trinity Sunday, let's join together in a Trinity Sunday prayer. Please pray along with me on your screen. Almighty and everlasting God, who eternally lives in loving fellowship with each other and reigns as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, help us always to hold firmly and joyfully to this Trinitarian faith and to regularly stand in awe of your divine majesty, that we may increasingly know you better and follow you more fully as one God in three persons, world without end. Amen. Another fine Trinitarian hymn was written by a Polish Catholic priest roughly around 1775. The fourth verse is especially suitable for Trinity Sunday. Listen to the music and read the words as they're on the slide in front of you. The mystery is an interesting phrase. Surely the doctrine of the Trinity is something of a mystery to us, not like a mystery story or a riddle that someone clever enough to figure out can. It's a mystery that expresses a reality that lies beyond our reach as human beings, beyond our human explanation. It's a mystery that we embrace by faith and that we celebrate in humble worship. The concept of Trinity is simple enough at one level. We believe there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They each share the same essence, or they are of the same substance. But at the same time, they are each distinct from one another as a person. It may sound like bad math, 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, but it is sound theology. 
You've seen this soldier's shield before from the mid-13th century known as the Scudum Fidei or the Shield of Faith. This shield contains a statement of Christian faith. At its, at its center is the word God. And it affirms as true that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Around the triangle, it's affirmed as true that the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father. The three persons are distinct from one another. At the same time, they live in a relationship with each other of self-giving love, and they are one God. The Father, at the top you see the word Abba, meaning Father, the Son on the lower left, depicted as a lamb, and the Holy Spirit on the right, depicted as a dove. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are one God in three persons. In describing the Trinity for over 1,500 years, the Church has been using two key words, usia, essence, and hypostasis, or persons. In the triune God, we see one God, three persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. All three share the same essence, the same usia. Essence is what someone is. Each one is fully divine. There is no sense in which the Father is more fully divine than the Son or the Holy Spirit. Hypostasis means persons. While we might say that essence is what someone is, a person defines who a person is. When we think about the Trinity, we must remember that there are three separate and distinct persons who have no beginning or end, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The path leading to the doctrine of the Trinity was fairly simple. Judaism and Christianity are a monotheistic faith, repeatedly affirming that there is but one God. This was the foundational truth in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Now that sadly did not keep the Israelites from being functionally polytheistic. They kept worshiping the gods of their neighbors. However, with the arrival of Jesus, there was something new. He upset the Jewish leaders with his claims to be equal to God, saying things that sounded outrageous to them. He declared that he and the Father were one, and that if you had seen him, you had seen the Father. And then later in his teaching, he began to talk about the Holy Spirit, not as God in action, as energy or power, but as a person. However, three persons identified as God in a monotheistic, monotheistic religion gets confusing. How can there be one God when it looks like there are three? This forced the church to get down to the business of sorting things out. Several heresies were floated but dismissed because they denied the full divinity of the Son or the Spirit, or they created three different modes of existence in place of three distinct persons. Being careful with the words of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles, the Church eventually articulated the doctrine of the Trinity. Likely the best articulation of this doctrine is in the Athanasian Creed. It begins, Now this is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Here the word Catholic means universal, and it's just simply another way of saying this is what all Christians believe, one God, three persons. So far this morning we've focused on the relationship of the Spirit with the Father and the Son. Now let's shift our focus to His relationship with us. 
The Holy Spirit didn't just first appear in the pages of the New Testament. He's visible and active throughout the Old Testament. In fact, his first appearance is in the second verse of the Bible, where we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In Exodus, where we read about the building of the tabernacle, we meet a man by the name of Bezalel, who was in charge of making the Ark of the Covenant. And we hear God say, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. Once the Israelites had settled in the Promised Land, we see God's Spirit equipping individuals to act as judges over God's people. One of the better-known judges, partly due to the tragedy of his life, was Samson. Several times we hear these words repeated in the description of Samson's life, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. And we know that the Holy Spirit inspired and spoke through the prophets. For we read in Peter's epistle, For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Two things change as we move into the New Testament. First, the Holy Spirit comes more clearly into focus as a person, not merely a force or an influence or a God in action, as some might say. He becomes more visible as the third person of the Trinity. This is a classic icon of the Trinity, meant to stir our imaginations as we reflect on the three persons of the Trinity living eternally in relationship with each other. So how do we see the Holy Spirit more as a person in the New Testament? First, Jesus gave him a title or a name. That's what we do with people. He's our paraclete, which identifies him as our advocate, our helper. Jesus also refers to him in other places as our teacher. And we also see him doing the things that persons do. Let's quickly run through a list. He hears. He speaks. He convicts. He testifies. He shows. He leads. He guides. He teaches. He prompts speech. He commands. He forbids. He desires. He helps. He intercedes for people with groans. He gives spiritual gifts to people based on his own choosing, as we read in Paul's letter. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one, just as he determines. He leads God's people, as we read, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and the Holy Spirit prays for us. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The second thing that changes is his relationship with Jesus' disciples, which is what we are. Something dramatically changed at Pentecost when, to use the words of the prophet Joel, the Holy Spirit 
was poured out on Jesus' followers, on his disciples. Let's think about the transition from the Old to the New Testament for a minute. A casual observer might think that the Old Testament is all about God the Father, the Father Almighty with Jesus and the Holy Spirit lurking somewhere in the shadowy corners. And then all of a sudden they, they appear in the New Testament. It's not accidental. It's not haphazard. It was planned. The triune God created us in his image, and he gave us free will, just as he had done to some other creatures that he created that we call angels. And among those angels, there were some who chose to rebel against God. The leader of those rebellious angels went to the garden and tempted Adam and Eve, our first parents, and they were swayed by his suggestions, and they chose to disobey God. The close relationship that they, they had experienced with their Creator, with God Himself, was broken. And it was downhill from there. Just even a, a casual reading of the Old Testament shocks us at the human inclination to constantly rebel against God. So what would God do? God had a plan, a plan of restoration. A plan of taking us back to what we were created to be. Back to the garden, as it were. And the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were the ones who would implement that plan. That's what we see unfolding in the New Testament. We see the implementation of the plan begin in the Incarnation. The eternally existent second person of the Trinity became human, born in miraculous circumstances, circumstances and given the name Jesus, Savior, because he would save us from our sins. Then Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He died for us, taking on himself the guilt of all of our human rebellion and sin. But also, and just as, as important, as the second Adam, something he's called in the New Testament, he shows us what we're aiming at. He shows us what it means to be fully human. However, no sane person who reads the gospel stories could ever reasonably aspire on his own to become like Jesus. This is where the Holy Spirit enters our story. The Spirit comes upon men as a result of what Christ has done and to make his work effective in our lives. This could only truly begin when Jesus had ascended into heaven and taken up his rightful seat there. Jesus spoke of that before his death. We read in John's Gospel, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Peter outlined this on the day of Pentecost, speaking to a group of people. After the glorification of Jesus, the Holy Spirit enters the picture in order to do for us what we could not do ourselves. The Holy Spirit is God, and He comes to possess us. And in the background, you hear my dog saying, Amen. He comes to possess us. He comes to transform us. Let's look at Acts 2. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As Graham pointed out last Sunday, if you are a Christian, you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. We see this in Romans 8, where we read, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. We have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, who is our helper, our advocate, our teacher. And yet, those words are not yet strong enough to describe what he does. The Holy Spirit changes us, he transforms us, and he makes us like Jesus. He begins the work of restoring us to what we should have been initially, had Adam and Eve not fallen. Paul told the Corinthian church Christians that the Spirit's work in their lives was aimed at making them like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 3 we read, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what will we look like when the Holy Spirit has done His work of transforming us? We'll look like Jesus. But in what way will we look like Jesus? Paul tells us in the Galatian letter, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the bottom line. We get transformed and we begin to look like Jesus. And what kind of person am I to my family? What kind of person am I with my neighbors, with the people that I might work with or volunteer with, in my case? What kind of person would I like to be with my family and the people I volunteer with? Who wouldn't want a neighbor who was, to use the words of Paul to the Galatians, loving, joyful, full of peace, patient, putting up with us, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and living out of self-control. This is the person that the Holy Spirit wants to make us if we will reach out to Him, if we will let Him. Do you want to have a life-transforming relationship with the Holy Spirit? Would you like the Holy Spirit to make you like Jesus? Then ask. One day, Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer. Listen to his words. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God gives us joyfully, willingly, His Spirit to change us, to transform us.
We just need to ask and to cooperate. I read this this past week, and I'm sorry I didn't footnote where I read it. Jesus Christ makes possible the genuine, positive experience with God, which people everywhere long to have. By the Holy Spirit, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ maintains immediate relationship with those who have faith in him. By the Holy Spirit, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ dispenses the benefits of salvation available through him. The Holy Spirit takes possession of and occupies those who submit their lives to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Holy Spirit, they then share his life and he begins to change them. The Holy Spirit wants to have a life-changing relationship with you. He wants to make you like Jesus. Open your heart, your mind, and your will to the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are God for all eternity. We thank you that you have been working along with the Father and the Son from the very beginning, and that you still continue to work today, that you are active in our lives, and that you wish to transform us and make us like Christ. And dear Holy Spirit, what greater aspiration could we have in our lives than to be like Jesus? What an impact we would make on our world starting with our family, our neighborhoods, our job places, our places of volunteer, our places of recreation, if we were truly becoming like Jesus. And what a privilege it is to become like him. Holy Spirit, come and make us like Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.